0: I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. At the heart of our democracy, it's we, the citizens, who vote for and elect governments at all levels. But in these weird times of COVID-19, the respective roles of federal and state governments are not always clear. And where does the National Cabinet fit in? So how can an ordinary person assess performance and vote without that information? Today's guest, Jenny Menzies, is Principal Research Fellow in the Innovation Hub at Griffith University. Jenny has spent her life's work in and around public policy, intergovernment relations and federalism. In other words, who does what, federal or state? We'll walk through a complex and at times controversial history. And at the end, Jenny suggests a back to basics intervention that would make understanding those roles and responsibilities a lot clearer for the rest of us when we next get to vote. Jenny, can we start by just talking about what does the constitution say? How do we, in Australia, decide the distinction between the roles of federal and state government?
1: Well, it's interesting because the constitution is a very clear cut and you quite often hear people talk about constitutional lawyers, talk about sections 51 and 52, and they define the Commonwealth powers. So, the Commonwealth powers are defined and limited. So, they're restricted to things like external affairs defence, currency, post offices, lighthouses, and then all the other powers then sit with the states and territories. And that that is because it was the states and territories that formed the federation. So they formed a national government so that they could have some kind of unity of purpose around some issues and diversity to govern for their own communities in the way that they wanted to. So that's why you have this distinct split.
0: Now, that's interesting because if you look at what was framed in the Constitution, maybe there's a bit changed since 1901 and we probably should run through that because I think most people would get that foreign affairs and the military, for example, interesting you didn't talk about tax, still stay with the Feds, but the landscape with some of those other services has changed.
1: Yes. So there's this kind of cognitive dissonance in Australian political life that now what happens is nothing to do with the constitution. And people seem to somehow feel comfortable about working around that. So what happened was there was a uh, a series of high court cases that extended the power of the Commonwealth always to the detriment of the states. And the states had income taxing power until the Second World War. And as part of the war effort, they handed that over to, back to the Commonwealth with the understanding they would get it back. They never got it back. So these, so, so you, you're now in a situation where through kind of some weird legislative things, the Commonwealth can use its, its corporations power or its external affairs power to override the states in some things. And, and what's also happened since about the 1970s is the Commonwealth has started started buying into areas that were 100% the state. So with the Whitlam government, you see things about environmental concerns. And what happened was activist organisations did a bit of forum shopping. If their state government wasn't responsive, they then went to the federal government. And from the 70s on, you see this development of federal government departments that never existed. So suddenly there's a Department of Environment or there's a Department of Health, or there's a Department of Education. So they started doing this interfering to a certain extent, mainly through their kind of financial superiority into the role of the states.
0: There's actually two parts to that I'm interested in unpacking. Can we come back to the finances in a minute? Because I suspect that's important. Are you saying, say with the environment, for example, that subject to lobbying, the Feds would, and both sides of politics, presumably, make legislation and then off we all go to the High Court to decide whether the federal leg- legislation is superior to state legislation and therefore the Feds get power? Is that kind of how it works?
1: That's what happened. So it happened twice uh, under the Hawke and then, under uh, the Whitlam and then the Hawke government. So the first one was the Tasmanian dams legislation that then went to the High Court and the High Court upheld the Commonwealth's right. To interfere with that, and the second one was the uh, World Heritage listing of the Wet Tropics in northern Qu- North Queensland under the Hawke government, where again they overrode the state government to stop all the timber usage of that and to list it as a World Heritage thing. And again, the High Court upheld that.
0: So, so that that brought them into environment, <laughs> the environment. So, what does the states' rights argument look like? We, we, like we often hear people talk about states' rights. What actually is it?
1: Well, it's interesting because in the Constitution, the state state powers are actually unlimited because, as we remember, it was the states that formed the federation, except when state law contradicts Commonwealth law. So state rights uh, are really about the capacity of those jurisdictions to create law to represent the diversity of the different parts of Australia. So people tend to think of... Uh, Australia being a very homogenous kind of federation, whereas there is some literature that says, no, there's quite a lot of diversity. And I, and I must say, living in Queensland, you probably feel that more than living in Victoria.
0: Um, <laughs> part of that diversity, and I knew we'd get back to money, part of it might also be about the affluence and the tax raising capacity of the states. What do the financial arrangements look like now between the states and the Commonwealth?
1: It's fairly fairly grim for the states at the moment. So Australia has what is termed vertical fiscal imbalance. So a properly balanced federation, uh, each level of government should be able to raise the taxes or the revenue it needs to deliver its own services. And that's what happens in the Canadian Federation. Canadian provinces have income taxing power. They don't have these complicated arrangements with with their federal government. So Australia as a federation has now got the most extreme VFI, vertical fiscal uh, inequality of any federation. So that means the Commonwealth has the taxing power and the states have the expenditure burden through major service delivery areas like health, education, police forces, justice systems... Uh, land management. So, that forces us into these complicated arrangements that people kind of see and don't understand about why the states are having to go to the Commonwealth Government all the time for these like healthcare agreements, uh, education agreements to get the funding to deliver their basic services.
0: So, if we went back to sort of fundamentally what a, a good federation would look like, what are some indicators as to where it's operating successfully and maybe maybe start with what do the dollars look like in a in an effectively running federation?
1: Well, I think I, I think, as I said before, in an in effectively running federation, you would have the capacity to raise the revenue within your jurisdiction to deliver the services that you need. So that would be either through some income taxing power or some other revenue streams. I should should say that Australia does have a system of horizontal fiscal equalization through the Commonwealth Grants Commission. So that does even out some of the um, inequalities to a certain extent and that means that all the money raised by the GST is distributed to the States and Territories. So it's about $60 billion a year.
0: So they've got some freedom in that regard to spend as they wish as opposed to other sorts of funding that might be tied to particular outcomes.
1: Yes, so that's untied funding that they get through the GST allocation.
0: But we still have more and less affluent states, presumably, Jenny.
1: Well, the role of the Commonwealth Grants Commission is to see that you can deliver this. People are entitled to the same level of services no matter where they live in Australia. So there's a whole lot of mathematics built into that about like remoteness, regional communities, how it costs so much more to deliver education, say, in Cape York than it does in Carlton or something like that. So that's the theory behind it. It does equal out a lot of the inequities that you would have otherwise. Otherwise in Australia, you'd have some very wealthy states and some very poor states.
0: Okay, so there's been a lot of talk over recent decades about the Council of Australian Governments, COAG. Uh, What's been your understanding of of the role of that grouping? Well,
1: COAG was uh, formed in 1992 that was developed by uh, Prime Minister Hawke when he realised that he wanted to do, do a whole lot of things that were under the jurisdictional responsibility of the states and territories. So you quite often find this dynamic in Commonwealth state relations. And that was the national competition policy. So it was a big microeconomic reform challenge of the 1990s. So Craig brought, came together for that And then it's waxed and waned, totally dependent on the Prime Minister because it is a Commonwealth entity. So John Howard, for example, had something like 2 coag meetings in four years, wasn't interested in it. And then after the Bali bombings, the premiers then went to him and said, look, we really need to do something about counterterrorism. And then there was a gun control issue. So that kind of brought him back to the table. So you see this pattern all the time. Kevin Rudd was elected on a cooperative federalism uh, platform, He caught his first COAG within two weeks of being Prime Minister and had four years. So he saw it as the workhorse of the Federation. Since then, it's gone back to about two meetings a year, which was the uh, mode that Scott Morrison was in until the COVID uh, crisis. You know, it it has a kind of wide agenda. Things go up through the bureaucracy, end up on the COAG agenda. They float around for a long time. People it's been criticised as quite an opaque process. No one knows much about the decision-making. But it also had the role as, as a, a bargaining format for those big service delivery programs that I spoke about before. So every four years, the renegotiation of the health agreements, and quite often that's when you see the fireworks at COAG, the premiers walk out because they don't get the deal that they want or whatever. So it became quite a transactional forum where the premiers went in to do the deals. So, it was became a deal-making form, and I think that kind of model was what put a lot of people off COAG.
0: Is it fair to say, though, that it started, if you talked about national competition policy, it struck me through the 90s that one of the real achievements of a sort of, what, a cooperative federalism was that we got a lot of legislation harmonised between the states.
1: Yes, that's true, it, and and what happened uh, in the early days was that the states uh, actually led some of the, the thinking and the work on it, particularly uh, the NCP under uh, Nick Greiner in New South Wales. National so it was competition more
0: policy, yeah. The national
1: competition policy. So COAC has always worked best when it's a genuinely cooperative process, and that was the gun control around the global financial crisis again. Uh, it worked well. So, but what happens is... Well, my theory is that prime ministers don't think about intergovernmental relations until they're prime minister. And the tendency for Commonwealth thinking is to be coercive. So instead of a cooperative federalism, you have a coercive one because the Commonwealth has the money. So they say, we want the states to do this. Uh, they don't consult properly. It's just given to the states as a done deal. The states then kind of fight back and tell them why it's not going to work. But the commonwealth holds ha- ha- the first strings. So that's the dynamic we've seen for about the past 20 years.
0: On both sides of politics, Jenny.
1: Uh, yeah, pretty much. They both pretty much fall into the same <laughs> the same bottle.
0: <laughs> These sort of things, though, become really um, they get a light shine on them when, as you, as you touched on, when the system. Really needs to work best. So, what's the, what was the triggers, and how do you describe the move from Coag to National Cabinet? I
1: think I think a few things happened uh, with the big with the beginning of the, the Coag crisis. I think there was a, a joint realization very early, and this was guided by the advice of the chief health officers that they were they were going to have to meet frequently. This was a very fast evolving event. And you needed to update your thinking as data and research and more material became available. So I think that that was one of the first things that happened. And then what I thought was the kind of conceptual leap for the Prime Minister was he realised through this there had to be a respect for jurisdictional capability uh, within the Federation.
0: Sorry, Jenny, what does jurisdictional capability mean? Just go back a step.
1: That, that, is, that is the kind of responsibilities of the states to deliver health and all that primary health care. Yep. So they kind of came up with this model where you, you get a national framework and then you allow for different implementation or response times to, to each state and territory. And, and I think what, what was also very useful in the transition to the National Cabinet was a lot of the thinking and the trade-offs were made public. So as I said, this is always a criticism of COE. No-one understands what they're on about. Whereas here, I think with the National Cabinet, everyone understood the problems that were identified and the solutions offered were of intense importance and it was all made public. So in the beginning, we knew we were there to flatten the curve to pre- prepare the hospitals and the trade-off was we had to shut down the economy. And so the the public were made privy to a lot of that evidence and arguments behind the decision-making. And I think that's why people suddenly had an appreciation for leadership and how difficult some of these decisions are. And these are the trade-offs you have to make all the time, but usually not open to the public in such a way as it was through the National Cabinet.
0: You're sounding pretty upbeat about that sort of tension that might exist between suppression and elimination, border issues, tensions between uh, federal capacity around aged care and state responsibility for health. You you sound as though that's a good thing that it's all getting an airing.
1: I think you have to get the balance, as always. (laughs) I don't see a problem with different states having different rules about when to close schools or open schools because they're all responding to their local circumstances. And, of course, we've seen that in Victoria over the last few weeks. Victoria is living under a different set of rules than we are in Queensland because of different circumstances. I don't think you can conflate the National Cabinet with a whole lot of structural issues that were already there, and aged care is a classic example. There have been 20 reports about the inadequacies of aged care before this, and it was not very difficult
0: thing to sort out in the middle of the crisis. Jenny, where do we go from here? What would what would a cooperative federalism look like in the future? What would be some principles or some elements of cooperative federalism that you would like to see going forward?
1: And this, this is where it gets a bit tricky for me because so far I can't see if there's any fundamental difference between COAG and the National, and, and the national Cabinet. And so COAG has always suffered from Commonwealth uh, dominance, which has led to those coercive practices that I said before. So the Prime Minister sets the agenda and really that means the agenda then revolves revolves around issues of importance to the national government. I think the new National Cabinet, they need to do a lot more work about it, around it, and, and, and I would suggest setting it up under some kind of um, intergovernmental agreement. Because at the moment the Prime Minister has set it up bizarrely as some subcommittee of the Federal Cabinet of which he is the only member. Well, you can't have... Uh, sovereign leaders of different parliaments somehow under this. So it's not tenable in the long term. There's no kind of constitutional legal basis for it. Uh, So its roles and processes and the philosophy behind it remain undefined.
0: So is it at the moment is sort of a version of a war cabinet that might survive for a while, so long as there's a crisis, but would ultimately unravel at the risk of putting words in your mouth?
1: That's exactly right. So that's why I I think they need to go back a step. I can understand why it was kind of all done rather quickly, but when it was first announced, my first thought was, oh, that's rather precipitate because if you're establishing a new entity, you need to go back and go, well, what is our philosophical approach to the Federation? You know, is this going to be a cooperative federalist model? Uh, You need to actually identify some of those issues. You have to identify what your role is going to be. So what are the issues that will go to the National Cabinet as opposed to what are the issues that went to COAG? You need to broaden it out from just being controlled by the Prime Minister. So I think you need some kind of joint Commonwealth State Secretariat You need the capacity for the states and territories to actually put issues on the agenda, which they don't have at the moment. So I was kind of surprised that the the premiers and the first ministers signed up to this as quickly as they did, because I thought it was an opportunity for them to go back to the Commonwealth and say, these are the kind of things we would like to see in a new entity.
0: Like building an organisation that you would start with a purpose and have roles, responsibilities, accountabilities, good process, and heaven forbid, even some values and behaviours, Jenny?
1: Uh, all of all of the above. And I've always argued that COAG has been kind of, you know, under-institutionalised. You know, it's got a bit of a secretariat sitting in Prime Minister and Cabinet, but it, it really needs much more around it and, and as you say, that clear understanding. I, I think what's keeping the National Cabinet together was obviously the focus on one issue and I think the kind of cohort principle that I quite often talk about where this co- cohort of leaders have found a way of working together, you know, and there's been some kind of, you know, challenges along the way, but they, they, they're meeting fortnightly, you know, a lot of decisions are being taken and they're being implemented. That cohort's going to change very quickly. So Queensland goes to an election in October, the ACT, whatever. So you're going to get new people coming in. And I think as soon as that cohort has broken up a bit, you're going back to the issue of, well, why are we here? What, what is this about? There's no kind of philosophical underpinning or structural proper structural underpinning of the National Cabinet.
0: So what would be the trigger to move to a more formalised structure as you've decided? Where's the value proposition that says we do need to invest in and, and what could be pejoratively termed its own bureaucracy, supporting um, that institution of a National Cabinet?
1: And this is where it always gets tricky in Commonwealth-State relations, because there is no incentive for the Commonwealth to invest in any of this. They have the money, they have the power, they can control the agenda. So it's going to have to come from the states and territories. And quite often, a lot of changes through COAG have come from the states and territories. Right at the beginning of the instigation of COAG, came out of some special premiers conferences where the premiers got together and said, no, we need some kind of more formal arrangement about how we meet and what we do. So I think the states and territories are going to have to get together and do the thinking, and I can understand why it's not a first-order issue while you're in the middle of a pandemic. But once we're through the pandemic, if this is going to be the primary intergovernmental forum of Australia, someone needs to do some proper thinking around it, and it needs to be established as such.
0: How would we all be better off? So we're out of COVID, and we do go through this thinking and set up a a Federalism Commission or something like that, or a National Federation Commission, what would be the benefit for Joe Public?
1: I think there's some benefit around clarity of what, what the National Cabinet actually does. So at the moment, the old COAG agenda, things kind of went on and went off, but there was no criteria for what needs to be worked on at that level. So again, that goes back to the philosophy. Why what why are you here? What kind of kind of federation are you supporting? I think it brings, it takes away some of the opaqueness and brings some transparency to the work that's going on for the National Cabinet. One of the disturbing things about the establishment of the National Cabinet was it actually reduced transparency. So previously with CoAG there was some limited FOI. You could FOI documents that had been to COAG. I think all the jurisdictions had to agree that they could be released. And what the Prime Minister has done now that he's ported in under this Cabinet Committee has said he's applying the FOI rules of Cabinet to COAG. Well, it's not a Cabinet. But that means that all the papers are locked down for, you know, I don't know if it's a federal one, which is 20 years or 30 years. Now, some people are challenging that at the moment. But what has happened is that instead of getting further transparency, which is what people liked about the initial National Cabinet, you're now getting less transparency. So I think in the long term the politicians need to get a bit of a grip on that because by putting kind of a lot of their partisan and ideological baggage aside during COVID to work together. They've had a huge spring in the polls. People like it. They like to see it. They like the way how it works. By hiding back again behind that cabinet exemption FOI, I think you lose some of that goodwill. So it's to their own best interest to actually develop a model that people can see what they're doing and why they're doing it.
0: How will we all be better off when they do? What would change as citizens?
1: I think it would People and engagement with that decision making, because at the moment no one, no one really. They people see COAG through the, the lens of symmetry. So you have the premiers at the front, kind of complaining about the deal from the federal government or whatever, and then you see them at the end of the meeting complaining about the deal for the federal government. People just tune off. The thing about the national cabinet is, to a certain extent, it transitioned from that bargaining model to a problem-solving model. And people could see that. They could see that all the premiers and the prime ministers were together trying to solve how do we address this pandemic. So I think uh, from the public's point of view, you bind them back into that heart of political decision-making to look at through greater transparency, to kind of look at the decisions. You can see the trade-offs and you have an understanding of what's happening. It's just not the grandstanding, you know, before and after the meeting.
0: So collaboration, it might even catch on.
1: Oh, you never know.
0: (laughs) Jenny Menzies, terrific to chat this morning. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Steve. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind, specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. And if you like the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.